Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, a.k.a. MMA Lock of the Night, your boy on social media at MMALOTN, and the architect behind the MMA Fight Archive, where we have over 3,000 fighter profiles available for you to make sure you leave no stone unturned when you're doing your researching for these upcoming MMA events. With over 15 and more MMA promotions from all around the world covered on this database, you'll be ensured that you have direct links to past fights for all of the competitors competing on these upcoming cards, like I said, so you leave no stone unturned when you're doing your studying. That's why top cappers, uh, uh, coaches, fighters, and commentators from all the biggest organizations around the world utilize this service and you can as well and check it out for free as well for a seven-day free trial with a link in the description below not only is the ufc going down this weekend but ksw 91 goes down this weekend as well so you can get all your studying in for that while also preparing for the big weekend next weekend where uh, i believe there's five or six total events on the fight archive that you can be studying from so make sure you guys check it out once again seven-day free trial available for you link for that in the description below all right this weekend, UFC 298 is what we're going to be breaking down for this card, this episode. Obviously, headlined by a featherweight main event between Alexander Volkanovsky looking to defend his featherweight title against oncoming prospect Ilya Tapuria. 14-0, hot prospect, undefeated. This is a very stiff test for somebody that a lot of people believe is the greatest featherweight of all time. Jose Aldo, obviously up there as well. Max Holloway kind of deferring to Volkanovsky now, but very intriguing featherweight matchup there. Uh, solid co-main event. Uh, I believe it's in the form. There, there's a lot of good main card fights. That's why I'm kind of scrambling right now in terms of what the co-main is. Yeah, co-main event, middleweight fight here between Robert Whitaker and Paulo Costa. We got Jeff Neal and Ian Gary in a grudge match as well going down. Marab Davalashvili going up against Henry Suhudo for a whoever probably wins, likely get, ends up getting a title shot and then capping off the main card is a very solid middleweight fight that should produce uh, an entertaining fight. Possible fight of the night contender as well between Anthony Fluffy Hernandez and Roman Kopilov. Before we get into that, let's quickly go over the uh, results from the last weekend's card, uh, which was UFC Vegas 86. We'll quickly start off with the lock of the night and dog of the night predictions here. Lock of the night, again, I got off the tracks here. I don't know why I did this to myself, but I went with the Robert Burchek and Ihor Potieria fight to go under one and a half. It was chalky, minus 260, I believe was the line that I got. Um, yeah, minus 260. Again, nonsensical play when there were other money line spots on this card that I felt just as confident about and were getting a much better line than the minus 260, but for some reason shot myself in the foot and took that spot. Really expected Burchek to take advantage of Potieria going down a weight class. Adding on top of the fact that Potieria missed weight, I really thought Burchek had the speed and power to land on Potieria and get him out of there. Obviously, very weird first round considering the... Um, uh, you know, the st uh, the the stoppages due to nut shots and eye pokes or whatever it was. So very unfortunate that we were unable to catch that. So we dropped the lock of the night there. A very rough weekend for the lock of the night plays, I must say, as also on the uh, regional shows we didn't do, to do too hot there. So it drops our 2024 lock of the night record now to 7-4 and four for a 64% hit rate. Uh, again, we started off hot in January, even the first week of February, but it hit a little bit of a snag here this last weekend. But we get right back on the horse and hopefully can cash this weekend's lock of the night play the dog of the night also ends up shitting the bed here as brad tavares goes out there and gets finished in the third round by gregory rodriguez he had some decent moments in that first round where he was landing some good shots hurt 
Rodriguez, uh, or at least wobbled him once in that first round. It seemed like he was starting to pick up some momentum in the second round, but then Rodriguez just said, fuck it, let's go balls to the wall in the third round, and we saw Rodriguez get the finish there. Good win for Rodriguez. He continues to improve at a stellar rate. Tavares, on the other hand, seeming to be on his decline now after having a long and tenured career in the UFC thus far. Ah, the only thing I regret is going a unit and a half there rather than just a straight up unit. Uh, but that now drops our dog in a record to four and seven on the year at for a 36% hit rate. The other spots on the card, again, as some decent other spots that kept me from being a complete mess this weekend. Uh, we'll start off at the top here. The lock of the, or not the lock of the night, but the main event, Jack Hermanson, one year at plus 220. I was banging the drum all week on Jack Hermanson for a lot of folks, you know, getting teared to shred shreds in terms of backing a guy like him in the spot but when you get a big juicy plus number on a veteran against a guy that has been stored scar scorching scorching through his competition uh through his first couple ufc fights and hasn't really been tested against a veteran like jack hermanson you take the underdog price and that's exactly what was uh beneficial for us hermanson goes out there drops the first two rounds but we saw pfeiffer and expected pfeiffer to start slowing down hermanson takes over in the third fourth and fifth rounds gets his hand raised by decision and we cash a plus 220 ticket danny Ye, who was probably going to be my lock of the night play had i not last minute resorted to that under one and a half instead he cashes relatively easily gets that one punch knockout over Andre Feely in the first round uh minus 170 not too bad there Michael Johnson made some questionable decisions in that second and third round still ended up getting the win but I really felt he could have gotten the finish if he put his foot on the gas in the second and third rounds it really seemed to me that Darius Flowers was slowing down tremendously and that would have been a great opportunity for Michael Johnson to let go with his hands and possibly find a finish especially with how much he was targeting the body but he still goes out there gets a decision victory we catch him at minus 125 and then the other play the last play that we catch or sorry I'd even go over the other loss here. Uh, Bruna Brasil, very frustrating performance. Only took a half unit shot on her because I know she has some mental lapses at times that puts her behind uh, her opponent. You know, I don't know what the hell she was thinking in that first two rounds, just waiting too often and what the hell her coaches were saying to her to say, hey, you won that second round. There was no realm that she won that second round. She didn't do nearly enough. And even though Loma's shots that she was landing, you know, a lot of them were leg kicks. They didn't seem to be doing a whole lot of damage. At least she was doing more than what Brazil was doing. And that was the difference maker there. We saw when Brazil was a little bit more assertive in that third round, she got some success and all the judges actually scored that round in her favor. I was hoping she would initiate the clinch even more, utilizing her strength advantage so that she can either just post Loma up against the cage or eventually drag the fight to the ground and utilize her superior strength there we saw it at the ending of the third round she could have been able to do it in the second round as well but again she has some sort of mental block that keeps her from being more assertive I hope going into her next fight her coaches or at least she changes camps so they can tell her just throw a little bit more even if you miss it doesn't matter those shots are going to look much better than not throwing at all so I hope she learned a big lesson there, especially in a fight that she probably could have won. Um, but we lose a half unit there. And then the final play that catches for us here is Hydra Meal, minus 172, close closer to minus 210 uh, by the time fight time rolled around. But again, another spot that I possibly should have gone locker than I deep on, given the short notice aspect for Fernie Garcia, given the fact that he's coming up a weight class against a guy who was stronger than him, a better grappler as well. 
very unfortunate there that we didn't go harder, but still happy to cash it. And again, with the lock of the night losing, we still only are down minus 1.8 units on the night. Again, the regional shows not too hot, so it was a worse night than just minus 1.8 units. But uh, again, very happy with my reads on Jack Hermanson there. Um, Dan Ige and Hydra Emil as well. Could have been a better weekend, like I said. But uh, I think one of the, the first losing weekends of the year for your boy as well. So let's hope to turn around this weekend. All right, two quick plugs here before moving on to the breakdowns. The Lockheed two-step is hot. This is another reason why I didn't go down too much this weekend was because this cash for the fourth week in a row, fourth UFC event in a row now, uh, the Lockheed two-step has come through for us. I think it was around plus 115 this uh, this week with Danny and Hydra Emil uh, anchoring that. The Lockheed Trinity ends up eating show with Robert Bird check going down, obviously, but that only brings our record to two and two for the Lockheed Trinity. Still in the positive there overall, but very happy about the performance of the Lockheed Two Step, and I can see the the segment gaining more traction and more views now because of the success of it. So if you want to get in early on the Lockheed Two Step, I dropped that on Mondays for the Patreon folks. So make sure you guys check that out on the Patreon page, the MMA LOTN Patreon page, not the Fight Archive, but make sure you guys check that out where we have written breakdowns where. You guys are watching this, these breakdowns about to drop right now, but the Patreon folks have already gotten it since like Saturday, Sunday. I normally drop the written breakdowns way earlier than I drop the actual podcast for the public. So if you want to get early in on that, check out the Patreon for that as well. Not just for the Lucky Two Step, Lucky Trinity, or the written breakdowns. A ton of other fun parlays, same game props, or same game parlays, uh, degenerate parlays, props, all that stuff. I cover it all on the Patreon. Check the link in the description below for that. All right, last plug, Godzilla wins. Your boy dropping written content for the public format there. Um, main event breakdowns on Wednesdays. Three best money line spots on Thursdays. I think we went 2-1 and one this past weekend. So make sure you guys check that out. All for free on GodzillaWins.com. Check them out, not just for the MMA stuff, but NHL, NBA, NFL. I know NFL is just about to wrap up. But all the sports are covered on there, not just by myself, but all these other great handicappers. So make sure you guys check that out. All right, that's enough. Let's get right into the breakdowns because we got 12 fights on top here and a very good card overall. Let's start off with the first fight of the night in the women's flyweight division where we got Andrea Lee coming in at plus 170. She takes on Miranda Maverick who comes in at minus 200. Now Andrea Lee is on a very tough run. Not only is she on a three-fight losing streak, but she's two and six over her last eight fights. She's had some very unfortunate performances during this run. Obviously what started the losing streak was her loss to Viviani Araujo where she started off hot but then really started to get deflated in the second and third rounds, allowing Araujo to take her to the ground and grind her her out the macy barber fight was a close fight which possibly could have been scored in her favor but to me it seemed barber was the one landing the more significant blows and she deserved to win that fight natalia silva again scorching hot prospect just picked up a big win over viviani arujo a couple weeks back uh, but silva very tough stylistic matchup for lee and lee was unable to get off on much of her own success Lee, when she is in her groove, she's a very solid combination striker. She does a great job in terms of putting her punches together and ending it off with kicks. She could even implement a grapple-heavy approach if she sees that she has an advantage there, but she seems like a fighter that can be quickly demoralized if things are not going her way. She completely shot and uh, you know finished Cynthia Calvillo, similar to how fighters are able to defeat Andrea Lee. 
you know, don't allow her to get comfortable in the striking realm, push her up against the cage, maybe land some takedowns and just wear on her. That's usually the best path to victory against her. And Lee's going to really be up against it here against Miranda Maverick, who's looking to get some momentum going after picking up a dominating victory over Priscilla Casuera. Now, even Maverick is on a little bit of a rough run. I believe she's three and three over her last six fights, but her losses are coming to solid fighters. Uh, Aaron Blanchfield, the Macy Barber fight, probably one of the worst decisions of all time. Uh, and then the Jasmine Jazdovicius fight, uh, a fighter she possibly was overlooking going into that matchup. But Maverick, very strong, very physical, does a great job in terms of stifling her opponents up against the cage, dragging them to the ground and damaging them from that top position. But she's also improving her striking uh, at a very solid rate. And again, she's only 26 years old and she's getting high level experience against a lot of good fighters, especially this early in her career, which will only benefit her moving forward. The way I expect this fight to play out, though, is with the physicality of Miranda Maverick, allowing her to put Lee into uncomfortable positions, whether it's pushing her up against the cage, dragging her to the mat, or just doing solid work from that top position. I think she wears on Lee and gets the victory here. My only concern is if Lee starts to pop off with her striking and really gets into a groove early on in this matchup, Maverick, Maverick, Miranda might struggle in terms of tracking her down and pushing her into those uncomfortable positions. Lee is clearly the better technical striker here, but I think Maverick is improving at a steady enough rate that she should be able to close the pocket, close the distance, get this fight dirty and grimy where she thrives, and that mostly will likely have this fight on the ground where she's able to do some big damage from that top position, grinding this fight to a decision victory. Minus 200 a little bit too wide for me. I'm going to wait to see how fight week plays out and see if we get some uh, Lee action that brings Miranda Maverick down. But uh, as of right now, I'll take Maverick and Maverick to win this fight by decision. Moving on to a welterweight matchup here between Oban Elliott as he comes in at minus 275 going up against Val Woodburn who comes in at plus 235. Now Oban Elliott earned his contract to the UFC through the contender series this past weekend but boy did he have to fight for it. He won the first round against Kike Burrito but got absolutely decimated in the second round, nearly finished and possibly should have gotten 10-8 that round. Only one judge scoring it a 10-8 and Brito pretty much emptied his gas tank trying to finish Elliott, allowing Elliott to take over in the third round, being the fresher fighter and just edging that uh, round out to get the decision victory. He's a solid fighter, 9-2. His only losses are to legitimate cage warriors, guys. Uh, he's a guy that likes to rely on his grappling to get a lot of his victories. But I think, relatively speaking, now that he's over in the UFC and fighting higher levels of competition, I don't know how effective his grappling is actually going to be. His striking still leaves a lot of openings, just as we saw Brito take advantage of. His durability was obviously holding up for him there, but I think his cardio is going to suffer against higher levels of competition in the UFC. I think what he makes up for in regards to the lack of discipline and technical striking is the fact that he pressures his opponents and stays in their face changing levels giving them a lot of different things to think about i just don't know if he has what it takes to really cut it in the ufc though the ufc is kind of giving him a lob here in val woodburn but woodburn's not a guy that should be completely overlooked in this spot now i get it he's kind of been the butt of the joke for a lot of people considering how easily bo nickel was able to dispatch of him and that only i think it was only a 38 second fight that woodburn was able to uh, to see the cage time that night where he came in on short notice up a weight class but weight class is the big thing here this is a welterweight belt this is the first time that Val Woodburn is going to try to make 170 pounds in his professional career this guy has fought all the way up to 205 pounds as a five foot eight fighter 
a lot of his fights have been him having the physical advantage over his opponents, which has allowed him to either finish them early or cage post them in very boring fashion for 15 minutes to win a decision. He has a questionable gas tank. You got to wonder how it's going to look for him to try to make 170 pounds, which shouldn't be hard for somebody who's five foot eight, but he is thickly built. So we'll have to keep an eye on the weigh-ins there, but he packs a punch. That's for sure. We know he can knock people out. He's very strong in the clinch. So it'll be interesting to see how Elliot tries to take advantage of that. But he has a sketchy gas tank. Those are all big things here. Elliot should be able to grind this fight out and possibly get a, lot, a second or third round finish. But you can't overlook the knockout power that Woodburn brings to the table. The holes that Elliot has in his striking game that could allow Woodburn to land that big shot. And the strength of Woodburn early in this fight could allow him to keep this fight upright. You know, technically speaking, Elliot might be the better grappler here. So he should be able to com complete his takedowns. But he's on a completely different scale in terms of wrestling that he faced in the Cage Warriors where... The, the average is much lower than what he's going to be facing in the UFC. And if it doesn't work out for him here against Woodburn, he could be in some shit facing the big power that he's going to be uh, uh, eating from Woodburn in return. So minus 275, no way, Jose. Fight doesn't go to decision. Maybe that's something that I could possibly extract from this matchup and hope for either an early Woodburn finish. Uh, if you can get Woodburn round one KO at plus 1,000 or a better, worth a shot in my opinion. Um... But I don't expect this fight to hit the scorecards. I think it's either going to be Woodburn early or Elliott late. I'll lean with Elliott late uh, inside the distance. Maybe TKO from that top position. But minus 275, no way, Jose. All right, moving over to another welterweight matchup here. We got Josh Quinlan coming in at plus 165. He takes on Danny Barlow, who makes his UFC debut, coming in as a minus 190 favorite. We'll start off on the Quinlan side, who suffered his first professional defeat last time around, where he got picked apart by Trey Waters in April of 2023. Quinlan was unable to crash the pocket and make up for the five-inch height and reach disadvantage that he felt in that matchup, not allowing to get off on his pocket exchanges where he's been able to get a lot of his knockouts in the past. This guy is a BJJ black belt as well, but doesn't seem to often look for that style as he likes to throw his big hands and try to knock his opponents out. It's worked out for him pretty well throughout his professional MMA career up until the point that he fought somebody that was able to keep him at bay and keep him frustrated with their long jab and long shots down the pipe. At 31 years old, Quinlan doesn't have a whole lot of experience, but he does have big power in his hands, and that's what he's been relying on as of late. His opponent this weekend, Danny Barlow, comes in with a 7-0 clean and unbeaten professional record and actually comes from an All-American wrestling background, but you don't see him often lean on it. This southpaw does a great job in terms of maintaining his distance, utilizing his 80-inch reach to keep opponents at bay and touch them up, really hitting them with that power shot with that left hand right down the middle. He's very good in terms of hurting opponents from distance. I wish he would use his jab a little bit more so he can stay active enough with that lead hand, but he's so quick and precise with landing that strike down the pipe that he knocks his opponents out more often than not. He has seven victories, five of them coming in the first round, two of them going to a decision, showcasing he can go out there and keep a steady pace even if the knockout doesn't come early, and it just showcases that this guy has... Pretty high fight IQ for somebody so young in their career. With only seven fights under his belt, he shows a lot of great things. Good discipline, great technique, and really stays within himself, not getting caught up too much in pocket exchanges and getting knocked out. He fought a power puncher in his last fight against Raheem Forrest and absolutely starched him, finishing him, I think, a minute and a half into that fight. 
He's a very solid fighter. I think he has an extremely high ceiling. And in this matchup against Quinlan, he will be able to use that 7-8 to eight inch reach advantage very effectively. This is going to cause Quinlan to either try to go to the wrestling, which I think will be thwarted with the wrestling background that Barlow already has. And then that will allow more openings to open up for uh, Barlow that he can capitalize on. I think that left hand, hand will land over and over again. And whether it's in round 2 or round 1, I fully expect Barlow to get that knockout finish here. So so give me Barlow, and I think he puts a statement on in his UFC debut here. Moving over to the light heavyweight division, we got Zhang Mingyang going up against Brendison Hibero. We'll start off on the Mingyang side, who's on a nine-fight winning streak, most recently getting his hand raised in a showcase bout in the road to UFC back in 2022. That night, he defeated a decent prospect in George Tokos who he was able to finish in the first round beautiful exchanges in that matchup uh, matchup both guys having success landing big shots of their own but it's ultimately Ming Yang who was able to hurt him badly and eventually get him out of there in brutal fashion now he didn't have to go the regular tournament way that the road to UFC is structured road to UFC also has some so showcase belts to put guys on on the stage and uh, see if they'll pass the te test in flying colors and that's exactly what Ming Yang was able to do and he was scheduled a couple of times in 2023. Unfortunately, none of those fights ended up transpiring. But knock on wood, he actually gets to throw down this weekend because this guy's fun to watch. He loves to go out there and slug it out and try to find early finishes against his opponents. Unfortunately, a lot of the level of competition he's been fighting on the regional scene, very low level, um, very average to low level. Um, the eight-fight winning streak he had going into the road to UFC fight, all of those opponents combined had a record of 36 and 35. Very average level of competition he was fighting, and he was able to go out there and just finish them with the power that he brought to the table. Uh, his ground game, very questionable. I've seen him get put into bad spots and have no idea how to work out of those bad spots. He's been able to pull off some submission victories of his own, but against the level of competition he was doing it against, again, very sketchy. His opponent this weekend, Brendison Hebero, came into his contender series fight this past August as a massive underdog, but managed to pull off the upset by knocking out LFA light heavyweight champion Bruno Lopez. Hebero is currently on a three-fight winning streak, and he's finished all three of those opponents, utilizing his striking, but also his grappling. Something that he likes to do is take opponents to the ground and grind them out from that top position, waiting for that opportunity to open up where he can uh, land big shots and get them out of there via TKO as well. He didn't look to grapple at all in his contender series fight because of the level of, I believe his opponent was a brown belt, now a black belt, uh, but he felt his best way to win that fight was on, on the feet, and Lopez was more than happy to tangle with him in that spot uh, but what I liked about Hibero in that matchup even though he was the one on the back foot he willingly engaged in those pocket exchanges when his opponent thought that they had advantage but the advantage by moving forward and throwing their own big shots first but Hibero his eyes were great he was watching his opponent waiting for the openings and throwing back and that's what eventually ended up leading to the knockout victory that he had he loves exchanging in the fire with his opponents and he's long and rangy for this division as well 81 inch reach six foot three uh he could easily be a heavyweight as well if he packed on a little bit more muscle but at 205 very difficult to deal with a guy of that height and stature now he did get knocked out twice back in 2022 which makes you wonder about his durability but he ate some big shots from lopez and continued to chug forward without showing any signs of faltering getting rocked or getting hurt at all i think his best work is what we'll see in this matchup so i'm surprised that he's a plus 125 dog here i expect him to actually go a grapple 
heavy approach for this fight. I think he's going to look to take Ming Yang to the ground, and I think he's going to look for that opportunity to smash him from that top position. I think Ming Yang gives up transitions a little bit too easily, and Hibero will be all over that, utilizing his strength advantage and his BJJ advantage to get the positions he needs to smash him from that top position with elbows. Even on the feet, I think he'll have better eyes and better accuracy, allowing him to land more effective shots when these guys are exchanging in pocket uh, spots, which I know is eventually going to happen. But I hope that we see Hibero actually change levels, drag this fight to the ground, and smash him from that top position to face even least resistance, or less resistance, I should say. But I think Hibero... Surprised he's the dog here. Maybe by fight time, he ends up being the favorite or this ends up being a pick him. But at plus 125, I think Hiberto is the spot. And I think he ends up finishing finishing this fight inside the distance via TKO in round one or round two. All right, moving on to the bantamweight division. We got the probably one of the brightest prospects currently on the roster. 8-0, Rinya Nakamura coming in at minus 900. He goes up against Carlos Vera, who comes in at plus 600. Now, this is a matchup that was scheduled a couple months back. I believe Vera had some issues. He was unable to make the date, uh, but they eventually put the fight together anyway. Nakamura uh, now is officially 1-0 in the UFC. He won the Road to UFC tournament uh, last year or the year prior to that uh, by knocking out Toshiomi Kazama in the finale, I think in less than a minute. Uh, and then he uh, goes out there and decisions Fernie Garcia with his patented wrestling style. This guy is an Olympic-level wrestler, but he likes to throw down with his hands, throwing big shots and trying to knock his opponents out. He has a very good cardio style as well so that he can put his opponents through the ringer with his wrestling if that's what's required but he's so good with his wrestling he's so dominant and does a great job in terms of controlling that top position but he's even scarier when he's confident with his hands and throws it with the type of precision and speed that we've seen in the past and that could open up even more opportunities for him to hurt opponents on the feet drag them to the ground and finish them there or even just go balls to the wall on the feet and try to knock his opponents out there too he's still only 28 years old but i think this guy has championship potential written all over him luckily for him he's going up against an aging 36 year old carlos vera who got eliminated for the mo- from the most recent season of the ultimate fighter in the first round by brad katona and i'm kind of surprised that the ufc decided to bring him around i think they're kind of just rewarding him for the fact that he's willing to take a guy like renny nakamura on short notice um you know, in this type of position. Normally, a BJJ guy, he likes to take opponents to the ground and try to submit them, but I think he's going to be pretty much up against the hearing against Nakamura, who should be able to dictate where this fight play, takes place. Even if Nakamura looks to take this to the ground, I think Vera will struggle to secure any type of submission here. I think we'll see Nakamura smash through his guard, you know, get to the dominant positions that he needs, and then from there, possibly either get a submission of his own or a TKO. I think he finishes it in the first or second round. I'm not completely sold that he gets this fight done. Vera's BJJ might be able to keep him safe enough, but I think that Nakamura should be able to dominate this this fight. Minus 900 is never really a spot that you want to throw into parlays, so I'd suggest maybe seeing if uh, Nakamura inside the distance is better than plus 100. I doubt it will be, Um, but uh, that's the only kind of shot I'd take on Nakamura here inside the distance plus 100 or better otherwise just pass and enjoy this fight as a uh, as a fan and bask in the potential that Rinya Nakamura has 
All right, moving over to the heavyweight division, we got Marcos Rogerio de Lima going up against Justin Taffa. Uh, de Lima coming off of a knockout loss against Derek Lewis last time around, and that halted his third time trying to go on a three-fight winning streak in the UFC. He always finds himself getting upset by some of these guys when he has some potential or some momentum rolling. He's done a great job in terms of maturing his game, though. He used to be a heavy puncher or a uh, just a grappler, but he's done a great job in terms of meshing those two together now he utilizes brutal brutal calf kicks and leg kicks to hurt his opponents and slow them down he uses his big punches to close the pocket to eventually get a clinch going and dragging his opponents to the mat and using his top pressure to just wear them out grind them out and go to a decision and win it that way but you have to wonder about his uh, durability at times as well he has been finished in the past just as we saw against the knockout king in Derek Lewis, so we can give him a pa- uh, a pass for that. But uh, he's very much matured. He's, like I said, meshing the MMA game together very well nowadays. His opponent, Justin Taffa, is a first-round robust type of fighter. He has a three-fight winning streak going on right now where he's finished all three of his opponents in less than two minutes. Um, but level of competition, kind of sketchy. Harry Hunsucker, Parker Porter, Austin Lane land a big shot on them all it takes is one punch for him and he's able to get them out of there we we know what Tafa is all about he wants to stalk you maybe land a kick here and there but more often not try to go out there and knock your head into the fifth round pretty much or fifth row pretty much but i think if delima can stay safe enough in the early going here he should be able to stay safe at distance utilize his leg kicks kind of stay away from the big power as best as he can and then get the clinch going wear on tafa drag him to the ground and then rinse and repeat that over three rounds it's gonna be tough you know if you try to go in on that minus 140 chalk on delima you're gonna be sweating every second that this fight is in the standing realm because tafa can end it at any moment but i think that delima has way more paths to victory here i'm not so down to go minus 140 on delima if we get some buyback on justin toffa here maybe if we can get delima closer to a pick i'd be more content with taking him there but uh this is a pass for me i don't want to have any action on this fight toffa by knockout or delima by decision i'm going to lean delima by decision if that uh, prop is plus 400 or better, maybe not a bad spot to take a little bit of a sprinkle there. But pa- overall, Delima, more paths to victory. Just got to stay away from that big power. And I think he should be able to do so here en route, like I said, to a decision victory. Moving over to the women's strawweight division, we got Amanda Lemos going up against Mackenzie Dern. You got minus 125 currently on Lemos, plus 105 the return on Mackenzie Dern. Last time out, Amanda Lemos got her first UFC title shot against Wiley Zhang, and it was a one-sided beatdown. She gave up six takedowns and when it was unable to stop the onslaught from Zhang, and she got completely ragdolled that night she was unable to get off on her patent and power early on in that matchup and that allowed Zhang to just continuously close the distance drag this fight to the ground and do what she did best what Lemos does best is normally just stalking her opponents with her quick t- quick twitch type of striking style where she's able to get to the target really quick with big power and that usually demoralizes her opponents from trying to get off on their own offense and that either results in a knockout victory for Amanda Lemos uh, possible submission victory if her opponents decide to go for a desperation takedown um, or 
she's just able to hurt them more over 15 minutes and win the fight on the scorecards. She's definitely not as good as a lot of people were expecting her to be as she was rifling through a lot of her early competition. Uh, and at 36 years old, you got to expect her to start slowing down at a certain point. She's still very dangerous. She has a lot of knockout power that needs to be respected. And that's what could potentially uh, come to fruition this weekend. Her opponent this weekend, Mackenzie Dern, has been flip-flopping losses and wins over her last six or seven fights now. Most recently, she got knocked out by Jessica Andrade, and she's looking to bounce back quickly as she takes this fight on short notice to try to get back, get back into the win column. She has a 14% takedown defense rate, or sorry, 14% takedown uh, uh, accuracy rate just showcasing that she very much struggles to get opponents to the ground the most successful she was with her takedowns was against Angela Hill a fighter that she didn't really have to worry too much about the knockout power coming back her way but more so her ability to just march forward throw big strikes you know knowing that she's gonna have to eat shots in return and then get in on the hips of her opponents and try to drag them to the mat when she has them off balance but she was unable to do that against Jessica Andrade because of the big power that she was facing in return and that's where she starts to run into trouble when she fights power punchers the Marina Rodriguez's the Yan Jiaonan's the Jessica Andrade's possibly this weekend the Amanda Lemos's she's stuck at distance She's stuck eating big shots and leaving herself susceptible to getting knocked out. And that's exactly what I fully expect to happen this weekend. Amanda Lemos will touch up Mackenzie Dern. Will Dern be able to complete a takedown? I don't think so. Unless, like, unless she does what she did against Angela Hill, which, in my opinion, will leave her open to getting completely knocked out here. I think she's up against it. And I think Lemos will do a great job in terms of sticking her from range and then eventually finding that knockout blow when Dern says, screw it, let's let's go. Let's let's try to get this takedown. And that will leave her susceptible to getting finished. So I'm going to go Lemos, Lemos round one knockout. I think she's just too powerful for Dern. I think her takedown defense, although it only shows roughly around 55%, um, defense rate that is, I think it's good enough to deal with whatever Dern's going to be throwing at her. So she needs to again not be too reckless on the feet take whatever Dern is giving her and try to make her pay for anytime she tries to crash the pocket and that should open up a finishing opportunity for Lemos give me Lemos Lemos round one knockout all right moving over to the main card now we got middleweights kicking things off here between Anthony Hernandez who comes in at minus 200 and Roman Kopilov who comes in at plus 170 now Hernandez is on a solid run after getting knocked out by Kevin Holland back in 2020 he now has a four fight winning streak finishing all but one of them which was that Josh Fremd fight where Friend was just he was doing enough to stick around but he's pretty much up against it that entire fight I love Anthony Hernandez. This guy fights like Cain Velasquez from back in the day, if you guys remember Cain, but uh, in the aspect that he puts you through the ringer. Pressure, uh, forward movement, uh, endless output, um, which sometimes could bite him in the ass like it did against Kevin Holland, uh, but also endless takedown attempts as well. He chains them together very well. If a, a takedown attempt fails, he somehow finds a way to turn it into a submission attempt. If the submission attempt fails, he finds a way to turn that into a, uh, a way to get top position, land a takedown. Uh, his striking, technically not the greatest, but it's enough because he uses it in terms of a pressure way, moving forward, landing big strikes, it's it's awesome. I love the way that he fights. We just have to ensure that he's trying to figure out a way to improve his striking defense, uh, his durability. That would obviously help as well because the only way to stop this guy is if you knock him out or find a submission uh, if he leaves himself a little bit too vulnerable. But 
he is all action all the time and really loves to break his opponents. And he has great cardio to do it over 15 minutes if that's what's required of him. His opponent this weekend, Roman Kopilov, is also on a 4-5 winning streak. And he's finished all four of those opponents who have tried to put it on him as well. Uh, Kopilov is a solid kickboxer striker who does a great job in terms of utilizing combination striking to pick his opponents apart and then finish them in the second or third rounds. Now, that's the interesting part of this because to, to me, it looks like this guy has a bit of a cardio issue. It seems to me that he starts to slow down later in fights, uh, but luckily for him, he's been fighting guys who have either worse cardio, guys that have mismanaged their gas tanks with uh, half-assed takedown attempts like Josh Fremd, um, but he's always managed to find a way to hit these guys and get them out of there. Um, but we saw in his fights against Carl Roberson, against Albert Derive, he can be broken and he can be all grinded. Just because he's Russian doesn't mean he has a spectacular wrestling game. He has some decent takedown defense early in fights. That's how he was able to stop the five takedown attempts from Josh Fremden in his last fight. But a guy like Anthony Hernandez will put him through the ringer. Hernandez will be susceptible to possibly being finished early on in this matchup. But if he's able to stay safe enough, where on Kopilov, he will open up a finishing opportunity for him in the second or third round. I really like Hernandez in this spot, and I truly believe that the public will bet on Kopilov during this week because of the highlight reel finish run that he's currently on right now, how he's been dispatching and finishing his opponents. So I'm expecting some action to come in at plus 170, but I'm going to be waiting and biding my time to eventually go in on Hernandez here. I think Hernandez wins. I think he does it in the third round, and I think it comes from that, that arm and guillotine that he loves to jump for. Second or third round, I'm going to be sprinkling both of those I think Hernandez wins. I think it comes with a little bit of adversity first, but from there, he should be able to take over and eventually finish Kopilov. I really think that uh, Hernandez is a tough middleweight to deal with, and if he can continue to improve his durability, his striking defense, this guy has an opportunity to one day fight for the title, especially considering he's only 30 years old. All right, moving over to the bantamweight banger that we have on tap here between Marab Davalashvili, who comes in at minus 180, and Henry Suhudo, who comes in at plus 160. Now, Marab Davalashvili is on a run of runs right now as he's been going out there and com- completely nullifying any type of offense from his opponents, the most impressive of which was against Piotr Jan last time around. He was able to land multiple takedowns and completely outstrike Piotr Jan, not so much technically speaking, but just output and activity. Piotr Jan was completely bewildered in that matchup, having no answer for anything that Marab was throwing his way. It didn't seem like Jan had any opportunity to try to... Um, to settle in, to, to get off on his combination striking because Marab was throwing so many different looks at him. And that's what makes Marab so special. The guy has endless cardio, so he can continue to go out there and land 20 takedowns a freaking fight or attempt 20 takedowns a fight because he doesn't care to control you on the mat. He's fine with you working back to your feet because that's almost as even more draining than just allowing you to rest on your back make his opponents work to their feet so that he can take them back down, rinse and repeat. But even with his striking offense, he stays in his opponent's face and technically speaking, not the greatest, but again, high output makes it very hard for the technically better fighters to get off on their own offense, just as we saw in the Piotr Jan fight. Mirab should be the uncrowned champion right now of the bantamweight division. Maybe a guy like Umar Namagamedov gives him some issues, um, you know, just wrestling-wise, but right now, the way that they're lining Marab up, it's tough to see how he does not become the bantamweight champion. But he has a former bantamweight slash flyweight champion to go through this weekend. And Henry Suhudo, who returned this past um, year, back in August, I believe it was, against Aljamain Sterling and came up short. 
Very unfortunate uh, loss from there. It was a close fight. Sterling ever so slightly grinded that out, got some uh, better positions, more control time, landed more damage. Um, it was a very un like performance, in my opinion. Sure, there is an argument that he deserved to win that fight, but I thought we would see a little bit more domination from him. That's not what happened. He's 37 years old, still trying to go out there and secure that bantamweight title, but he has a very tough opponent to do it up against here. Again, Suhudo, we know what he's all about, right? He has wrestling, uh, improved striking, he likes to use that karate style to explode on his opponents and land big shots, uh, then transition to takedowns and try to grind them out from that top position. But we know the speed is going to start to dwindle. We know the efficiency and accuracy of a lot of his offense is going to start to dwindle. And to try to do it against a guy like Marab, going to be tough. To me, I think Saudo needs to land the perfect strike to put Devalishvili out. Otherwise, he's going to be overwhelmed by the output activity. Um, takedowns, again, people might think that Devalishvili might not be able to complete a takedown here on Suhudo. I think he will be able to. Maybe not a lot of them, but he'll be attempting a lot of them just to continue to change the work rate and type of um, offense that he's throwing out there to Suhudo. I like Devalishvili here. I think minus 180 is fair. I think the output, cardio, everything, Devalishvili just abolish feeling is going to be too much for Suhudo on the spot. I think he wins it by decision. All right, moving over to the welterweight matchup here. It's a grudge match that we got between Jeff Neal, who comes in at plus 180. And then on the flip side, we got minus 210 on Ian Machado Gary. We'll start off on the Jeff Neal side, who had a spirited effort against Shavkat Rachmanov last time around, but Rachmanov proved to be too much, getting the submission victory in the last minute of that fight. Now, Jeff Neal was a feared welterweight prospect at one time, a guy that utilized solid combination striking and massive knockout power to get his wins and position himself in a a very big high level matchup against Wonderboy Thompson in a fight that he ended up coming up short against against the better technical and way more puzzling striker uh, that Stephen Thompson is. Now, Neil is still very dangerous as he showcased in the Santiago Ponzinibbio fight and the Vicente Luque fight of both of those fights. I believe he came in as the underdogs for, but very solid fighter still. He is a guy at 33 years old who can still put punches together well, who still has great knockout ability, not just with his hands, but also his kicks, and a guy that still needs to be respected. It seems like a lot of people are throwing him under the bus considering the 2-3 and three run that he's currently on, but also him not really achieving the potential a lot of people expected of him. He's still a high-level opponent. He's still a top 10 to 15 guy in my opinion. Now he goes up against Ian Machado Gary, who's 13-0, undefeated, been running through most of his competition, and really the only hiccup we've seen from him is that Kanan Song fight where he got clipped in that first round, dropped, but managed to still rally back, win the second and third rounds, and get that finish in the final frame. Uh, he's long, he's lanky, likes to utilize those kicks from distance, has a sneaky jiu-jitsu game if that's how he wants to attack his opponents, but he is an ever-improving fighter, and at 26 years old, has a very high ceiling. But this could be a tough matchup for him. This is the toughest fight for him, in my opinion, since being in the UFC. Way tougher than Darian Weeks. Way tougher than Gabe Green. Way tougher than Kanan Song. Way tougher than Daniel Rodriguez. And way tougher than Neil Magny. This is a guy that's going to throw back. This is a guy in Neil, Jeff Neil, who's going to be looking to counter uh, Ian Machado and possibly even land a knockdown of his own, similar to what Kanan Song was able to do. So seeing the line as wide as it is, 
I think it has to do with recency bias. I think it has to do with the fact that Jeff Neal is 2-3 and three over his last five, even though the guys that he's losing to were weird stylistic matchups. And let's not do the whole MMA math thing here. Neil Magny was a tough stylistic matchup for Jeff Neal because he was able to engage in the clinch and get that dirty style that he always has to, that has made Neil Magny successful in the past. Whereas Ian Gary, great kicker, was able to slow down Neil Magny and keep him at range and pick him apart. Here... I don't know if Gary can be successful with chopping away at the legs of Neil. Neil will counter him. Neil will check those kicks as well. And Neil will happily exchange in the fire, landing counter shots and possibly dropping, hurting, and maybe even finishing uh, Neil, uh, Ian Gary here. So again, we learned it last week with Joe Pfeiffer, a guy that was going out there and finishing a lot of his opponents and seemingly untouchable, goes up against a veteran and comes up short. Jeff Neil could be that for Ian Gary here. Without a doubt. And you're talking about a pissed off Jeff Neal. A guy that, you know, Ian Gary has been poking fun at, you know, utilizing his mugshot to make some money, all those types of things. A pissed off Jeff Neal with a high-level coach like Safe Sayuru can devise a plan to close that distance to, you know, again, uh, Neal actually has a one-inch reach advantage here. He will be at a four-inch height disadvantage, which will obviously play in favor of Ian Gary. But I know Safe Sayud possibly has that. No, not possibly. He for sure has that um, game plan that could stifle that height advantage of Ian Gary and allow Jeff Neal to get off on his own offense here. So I wouldn't play Ian Gary at minus 210. No way. I'm looking at Jeff Neal here. I think that we're getting off a pit and we're getting a pissed off Jeff Neal, a technically, um, I don't want to say superior striker than Gary. I think they're evenly matched in the striking realm, but the experience is far in Jeff Neal's favor considering the level of competition he's been going up against. Give me Jeff Neal here. I got in at plus 200. I'm seeing plus 180 now, but I already got in at plus 200. I think it's worth a shot and I might even sprinkle him to win by knockout. My official prediction here is going to be Jeff Neal by second round knockout. All right, moving over to the co-main event. We got Robert the Reaper Whitaker, or his nickname should be Bobby Knuckles. He comes in at minus 220. He takes on the very rarely seen Paulo Costa, who comes in at plus 185. Now, starting off with Robert Whitaker, last time around, we saw him come up short against now champion Drickus Duplessis. And it looked good for him the first three and a half to four minutes of that fight until he got clipped hurt badly, and busted up by Duplessis, who was eventually able to find the finish in that second round. Now, Whitaker is a guy that has been fighting high-level competition in the middleweight division ever since becoming champion back in the day, but is still a guy at 33 years old could be very competitive. He utilizes a karate-type style where he blitzes in and out with his strikes, uh, has a nasty head kick that he can implement as well, but also an underrated wrestling game that we've seen him show glimpses of here and there. I thought his last loss to Israel Adesanya was a close fight that he probably deserved to win as well. This guy is very talented still and has a lot to prove. It's just his durability that we have to worry about a little bit. He's going up against a very powerful puncher here in Paulo Costa who could definitely make him pay for any type of uh, ill-advised closing of the pocket with his blitz and karate style. Paulo Costa is a guy that has not been active recently. You know, he's had a couple fights fall through in 2023, and the last time we saw him throw down was against a retiring Luke Rockhold, uh, who looked like complete garbage in that matchup, and he still managed to see the scorecards that night. Paulo Costa wore on him, 
And he even ate some big shots in return, and Rockhold had some glimpses of brilliance himself, but it was Paulo Costa who was able to get the decision victory that night. You got to wonder how committed to the game Costa is, because you know Whitaker is all in. Whitaker still wants to become the middleweight champion again. This is a guy who fully believes that he can contend against the top of uh, top of the heap, and I, I, it's hard to see why not. The guy is very skilled all around, whereas Paulo Costa... You don't know which version of him you're going to get. But one thing you can count on is that he'll bring knockout power to the table more often than not. And that's kind of my concern in terms of playing the chalk on Robert Whitaker in the spot. I would rather look to take Whitaker by decision because I think we'll see more of a point style from him. Maybe even try to get some takedowns and some clinching going. But I think he's going to try to stay away from the power of Costa, chip away at him from distance, and hopefully win this fight on the scorecards just by outpointing him. So I'd look more so to take the prop of Whitaker to win by decision here rather than the chalk at minus 220 because if Paulo lands that bomb we're going to be kicking ourselves for taking such a chalky favorite knowing that Whitaker has been hurt in the past and he's going up against a very uh, heavy puncher here in Costa so I'm going to go Whitaker Whitaker by decision um, but chalk a little bit too much for me to be comfortable with all right this is the one the main event featherweight title on the line Alexander Volkanovsky going back down to featherweight, looking to defend his crown against oncoming super hot prospect, Ilya Teporia. Now, we got minus 115 on Volkanovsky. I saw him as the underdog a few days ago, but money coming back in on the, the champ here. And minus 105 currently on Ilya Teporia. We'll start off on Volkanovsky, who is now 1-2 over his last fight, two or three fights. But those two losses obviously coming to lightweight champion Islam Mahachev. Last time around in October, Volkanovsky took the fight on very short notice, stepping in for the injured Charles Oliveira. And it obviously ended up being a unfortunate circumstance for Volkanovsky to take that fight. He was coming off of a surgery, a quick turnaround, and didn't really seem to be in the physical shape we were used to seeing him in. And unfortunately, he suffered for it. He got knocked out by Islam Mahachev in the first round of that fight. Prior to that, we saw Volkanovsky put Yair Rodriguez to the ringer and finish him brutally, I believe, in the third round of that matchup. Volkanovsky is a guy that's not a master at one specific discipline, but a master at combining the martial arts and executing a game plan. He does a great job in terms of knowing the path to victory for uh for his opponent whether it's out striking them out grappling them out clinching them or even just putting on a high work rate to um outpoint them against a fighter that isn't really known for putting on a high activity of their own he's so good uh everywhere you know i mean he's a great striker uh good kicker good grappler as well great control from that top position and he just knows how to win and he has great cardio as well which allows him to be effective from minute one to minute 25 35 years old. That's kind of the big talking point this week for a lot of people because there's that stat out there. And even Volkanovski made a funny uh, commercial with the sports betting website from Australia talking about fighters and title fights that are 35 years or older have like a 2 and 30 record uh, in those scenarios. But you have to give exceptions to certain guys. Alexander Volkanovski is one of those guys you give an exception to. A guy who just turned 35, he's not, you know, he's. It's not like he's deep into 35 or anything like that. He just turned 35 back in September. So, you know, it's not too far into 35. But this is a guy I still believe is capable of high-level performances. I think we can't look too deeply into the Islam Mahachev knockout considering all the factors going into that matchup. His opponent this weekend, Ilya Teporia, is a guy that I've had my eye on since his Cage Warriors day, days. He faced uh, Brian Bulan relatively as an unknown fighter and came in and won that fight, I believe, by submission. Since then... 
scorching hot, right? He took a little bit of time off, but then uh, splashed onto the UFC scene on short notice and during the COVID era, picking up that victory over Yusuf Zalal, and then from there has been finishing most of his opponents en route to this title fight that he has this weekend. This guy's very talented. He's a BJJ black belt, but he has been using his hands to do most of his talking in his uh, latter half of his career. Most recently against Josh Emmett, where I think he landed three knockdowns in that fight. Uh, Emmett showing heart unlike anybody else we've ever seen. But Ilya Tapori showcasing that his hands are definitely improving and catching up to his grappling level. This kid's only 27 years old and has seemingly skyrocketed to the top of the featherweight division. But I think we have to give some credit to Volkanovski in terms of turning away all of the contenders that are being thrown at him, which has kind of helped Tapori go from fighting Bryce Mitchell and Josh Emmett and now getting a title shot. Although Josh Emma did fight for an interim title in his previous fight to that Taporia fight. But Taporia, very skilled, has a super high ceiling. I don't doubt that at all. But I wonder if this is just too big of a skill step up for him going from Josh Emmett to Volkanovski. Now, again, I get it. Tupori has been finishing guys in emphatic fashion or at least making it look easy like he did against Josh Emmett. And Volkanovski, 35, and just got knocked out by Islam Mahachev. But this is a completely different puzzle. This is a different stylistic clash. This is a fight where Volkanovski could potentially stifle the big power of Taporia. Utilize leg kicks. Utilize a lot of lateral movement. Maybe get the grappling going. Sure, we, Taporia might have a high-level BJJ black belt, but we've seen Volkanovski get put in the worst positions and stay disciplined, stay calm, stay composed, get out of those bad spots, and then get back to putting the whooping on his opponents. To get a fighter of Volkanovski's level at minus 115, in my opinion, is a steal. And I don't doubt that there's going to be more public love coming in on Toporia on fight week that could push Volkanovski back to plus money. So I'm going to stay patient. I will potentially take at least a unit shot, maybe two units shot here on Volkanovski, as I still think that he can compete at a very high level. Losing to Islam Mahachev, having Mahachev as two of your three losses throughout your career and the other loss coming way early in his career... That's nothing to hold your head about. That's nothing to write off a champion of Volkanovski's level. Taporia, again, great prospect. A guy that could potentially be the champion eventually and reign supreme. But it's a big step up going from fighting a grappler, a grapple-heavy fighter like Bryce Mitchell, a power puncher like Josh Emmett, to fighting a master like Volkanovski. I don't know. I don't know how people can do it with such confidence. But I'm going to go with the Volkanovski side here. I think Volkanovski outworks Taporia. And I think he gets the decision victory with grappling, with striking, with everything. He'll face some adversity. I don't doubt it. But I think he'll battle through it. And I think he'll retain his title and still Alexander Volkanovski by decision. There you guys go. Breakdowns on all 12 fights for this UFC 298 card going down in Anaheim, California. I got a ton of great content coming this week, as I always do. Again, tomorrow, top three lock of the night candidates. Wednesday, top three dog of the night candidates. Thursday, quick picks. At least a quick picks version of this breakdown. Not going a full hour like I just did for you guys. Uh, also, the Lockheed Trinity slash Lockheed two-step free parlay. If you want access to that even sooner, check out the Patreon page where I've already posted it. And then Friday, top three best prop bets. All right. Appreciate all the love. Appreciate all the support. Let's have a great week, folks. I'll see you guys again tomorrow. Peace.
Last thing. 